So Ty has a question. He said, how do you influence the decision maker when you're working through a hostile intermediary or third party? A low level example would be working with like a used car salesman and the financial decision makers hidden back in the office. Yeah, well, that sounds like what I used to do for a living. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because there's always a team on the other side. Mm -hmm. Always is. You know, I was a kidnapping negotiator. Kidnapping is a business. If it's a business, they have a boss who's not directly involved. He's a decision maker. They got a team and I got a hostile intermediary. And, and, and yeah, car deal is a great example. Your intermediary, the hostile person is also, you know, they're the deal killer if you're not careful about it. You know, how you interact with them are going to be critical. Uh, when I'm trying to get an upgrade on a suite, and in a, in a hotel and the clerk at the counter has got to go, got to go in the back to ask the boss if it's okay to give the suite. Right. The boss is going to say, you know, I don't know, is this guy a jerk or is this guy a nice guy? You know, the clerk's going to go back there and they say, Hey, I get this jerk out front who wants an upgrade. I promised I'd ask. And he'd be like, yeah, no, no jerk gets an upgrade. Or she goes in the back here. She goes in the back and says, you know, this is pretty nice guy out there. You know, we got the, we got empty suites. Nobody's going to be in them tonight. Right. You know, he's, he's a decent dude. Why don't we let this guy in there? I mean, it's the same kind of a thing. Never be mean to somebody who could hurt you by doing nothing or could hurt you by how they characterize you to the decision maker. Right. Yeah. So how do you deal with them again? You know, uh, proactive empathy. You know, I'm, I'm going to seem like a jerk asking for this. Uh, you know, I, I know I'm going to make your day miserable. How bad of a position do I put you in if this happens? Because the other thing the intermediary looks at is, what position are they left in if they give this to you? Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's what we do with when I'm working on an upgrade in a hotel on a regular basis. You know, how, how, how many people are going to get mad at you here if, if, if you give this to me? Because that's what's going to go through their mind. If I mm -hmm. do this, what's going to happen to me? What kind of a position does it put me in? So I, you know, I recalibrate my question so that they go into the future slightly and they deal with it. And then they come back to me. And we work together. So, yeah, that's how you do it. You know, precede this with empathy. How's it going to look to the other side? What's it going to do to them? Show them that you're taking it into account and, and make your ask. Okay, role play with me for a half a second. So you're checking into the hotel and I'm, the, I'm at the front desk because hotel upgrades happens to be one of my great passions. And, and I'm going to send you, because I think you will really love it, my whole breakdown of how, how I get upgrades. And I would love to compare notes with you. So I'm, I'm at the hotel and you've just arrived and you're looking for an upgrade. Mr. Voss, welcome. I see that you have your reservation here. We have a wonderful King room on the first floor by the elevator. It's a little noisy, but uh, hope you enjoy it. I am getting ready to ruin your day. What's what, what, how, how is that going to happen? Well, I know I'm just going to seem like a self-centered traveler who just doesn't care about you or anybody else and super entitled. And I think I'm worth more than I ever am. If I ask you for something free. Oh, okay. What are, are you, what, what can I do for you? How can I help you? How many people are going to get mad at you if you give me a free upgrade to a suite? That's great. I love that because then they're going to check inventory and very often they don't have to go in the back, but sometimes they do. 
It, that's that's really cool. I, I always, you know what what like, and, and this is empathy. And, so. and, and let me let me let me take a time out here too. Yeah, yeah. I don't always get a suite because the hotel I just came from was fully booked. But through that process, I always get something. I love. I it. have never not ended up in a better position ever. That's awesome. Now, through that process, you know, you know, we connected. Yeah. Like you and- felt like that I realized that, that a lot of self-centered people come through here. Yes. So yeah. what I want is to be better off no matter what. Yeah. And I don't want my ask to constrain my options. Exactly. Yeah. I it's funny, I I start with the line because most people will just, when the person in front leaves, they'll just walk up. So I'll go up and I'll wait for them to invite me to come up so that they are on their time. Cause a lot of times they'll have something they have to do. And if you're up hovering over them, it makes them feel stressed. So I wait for the invitation first and then I'll look for anything that I can compliment them on or build rapport if they've got, and it's on, it's sincere. I won't do it, you know, but, but, you can almost always find something to compliment people on or on the name tag. Sometimes it'll say they're from somewhere and I'll be, Oh, you were from, you know, Saskatchewan. I remember I went up there and the, you were, you at the such and such there. And then that starts that rapport building of commonality. Then I say, what kind of room, you know, do we, do we have? And they'll tell me. And I say, I said, that's great. What's your favorite room in the hotel? Ah. And then they get excited and they're like, Oh, I like the, you know, Carlisle suite. It's amazing. It's got this blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, that's great. That's really cool. What would it look like if I was to get upgraded to that suite? Which I don't like as well as I like your thing saying, um, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm about to, to seem like a jerk, but I like that too. But I say, you know, I future pace them into, right. give me a vision of what it would look like if you upgraded me to that suite. And so then that usually leads to, well, I can't possibly do it because we're sold out. No problem. Okay. You know, then we'll do what's your second favorite suite. But very often it will be a collaboration then right. that they're trying to figure out how to work with me and within the system to get me into that room because they're excited to share that. And, and that's been super cool. So that's been uh, lots of presidential and imperial and such and such suites using that strategy. So I love that. I, but, but I'm going to send you my thing too. And I love no, I like that a lot. I mean, and one of the things I really love about your approach is, you know, we like to say vision drives decision, decision drives action. Yes. Your question is putting a vision in their head. First of the suite, and then you, you didn't say, can I have it? No. You know, which is a closed-ended question. You said, what, it, what would it look like? Right. And that's a visioning question. And, you know, that's, 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 I could go on and on about how much I love about your approach. I didn't want to pay $26,000, so when I reached out to them. They called me back and said, hey, Mr. Smith, what do you think? Can we get started? And I threw out the accusations on it. I said, you're probably going to think I'm crazy. You're probably not even going to want to do business with me. You may even say I'm a jerk. That I'm taking food out of your family's mouth. You're probably going to say, you know what? I wish we never even went to his house. And you're going to want to lose my phone number. And they go, Mr. Smith, no, 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 no. We want to work with you. 
And they said, how can we do that? So they gave me permission to say what I needed to say. And that's when I told them, I said, $26,000 don't work for me. I said, I've run the numbers, I've crunched them. My wife and I have sat down and talked about it. And the best we can do at this time with feeling comfortable and not putting ourselves in the bind is $19,762. And when I said that, the guy was so relieved that he says, we'll do it. And he had to stop and think about it. He goes, oh, I mean, I mean, let me go talk to my manager, but I'm sure we can do that, Mr. Smith. Thank you. Thank you. And they were so excited about it not being more serious or worse news than they had anticipated that they will, were willing to do it for $19,762. And that's exactly what they did it for. So if you let the accusation audits, if you're afraid of doing accusation audits, you're hurting yourselves. And finally, the R, the R is remember. We have to collaborate with each other. That's the key. You know, the counterpart is not the problem. The adversary, they're not the problem is the adversary. So you have to work together with the counterpart to come up with the solution. You wanna be a teammate. You wanna have a, help with the problem solving. And the only way you're gonna do that is by remembering that they're not against you, you're not against them. The problem is what you have to work through. Just regarding the accusation audit, just to confirm, so it's, it's basically statements that you'd have to make in a way that you're, the other side just thinks that you're gonna be, you, you throw them off the ledge in a way that they're on the other side. They're thinking that, man, that he's gonna speak something really bad, it's really terrible news. And then you give him your point of view and your the news that you want to actually throw to him and then he thinks okay fine it's it's not as bad as we imagined it to be so is is it something like that oh yeah, it, it, that's that's part of it that that's part of it when you when you're going to share bad news set the bad news up and it's never going to land as badly as they thought it was anytime you're going to ask them for something set it up with an accusations audit by the very by by the very nature of an ask, you are putting work on someone's plate that is not already there, which means you're You're being inconvenient at that time. And yeah. you're causing work for them. That is something that most people don't want. Most people have enough work. They don't need you putting extra work on their plate. So regardless of how small or large the ask is, set it up with an accusations audit. And then use it at the beginning of your conversation to take authority and permission away from them from using the negatives against you as you move through the conversation. If you fail to do that, you allow a black hole type of vortex to exist in their thinking process. And while you're in a conversation with them, they're not listening. They're thinking about all those negative things that you didn't do anything with. And that's what's gonna keep their um, attention. Do you practice every day? Any on any transa I mean any financial transaction, are you practicing, even if it's a cup of coffee, if it's uh, the gas station, if it's a hotel, it's a plane, any are you always practicing? It's a perishable skill. And me and everybody on my team, if we let ourselves get out of practice, we get rusty. Interesting. 
I'm really used to my no-oriented questions. That's pretty much all I ask. What questions? Uh, no-oriented, where I'm trying to get you to say no. That's what is you it do. A ridiculous you're practicing idea. That. You're pricing that constantly. Yeah, I keep that. I keep that teed up constantly. Is it a ridiculous idea? Is kind of your go-to. Yeah. Is it a ridiculous idea for me to get a yeah. the employee discount today? Yeah. And so, depending upon my daily interactions, I get so caught up in my world that I don't get my practice in. Mm-hmm. And so, like huh. when we started traveling in right after the pandemic, I'm getting ready to go into a hotel. I haven't done a hotel upgrade in a while. And I almost talked myself out of it. Really? I am, I am, oh, this, you know, amygdala's kicking in. Uh-huh. It's not going to work. I'm going to embarrass I'm myself. I'm tired. Yeah. I, can, I can see this guy turning me down. I mean, I literally stand outside the hotel and I go, ah, ah, all right, all right, you can do this, you can do this. Come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it. And I, I got to psych myself up because I'm out of practice. Yeah. But you're the guy. That's right. Everybody, it's perishable. Mm. For everybody. Uh-huh. It ain't. It is not riding a bike. Yeah, and then you also got to be willing. Like, not, if it works nine times out of ten, sometimes you don't get anything. Right. Uh, the hotel I was in recently. You know, my read of the guy is you run across deceptive people that are not there to help you, that are not going to give you anything. And through the course of the interaction, I get several very strong reads that this person was that minority that we're all afraid of is the majority. They're a minority and they're there. Mm-hmm. And so that interaction was, all right, so my read is this, this, and this. Now I'm smarter. I see this guy coming farther away. Like Conor McGregor. Uh-huh. Conor, you know, I win or I learn. Sure, sure. You know, you win or you learn. Now, I'm curious. When you go into a store, a hotel, a, you know, airport, is it, and there's multiple options of people to talk to, who you would buy from or get upgraded from. You know, yeah. There's two people at the counter. There's three people at the store. Are you assessing first who I should approach based on body language, based on if they smile, if they're you know, in a more positive state? Or is it depending on male, female? Is it, no, are you, do you have a success rate based on, is it just more an intuitive feeling that who you walk up to? I, you know, I hadn't thought about that before. What I'm really more worried about is what kind of vibe I'm putting off. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't have a lot of control over who I'm going to get. In point of fact, they're reading me before I start reading them. Because, you know, they got, they got a revolving door. They're picking up this energy. I think there's actual energy there. It's one of the things I bounced off of Andrew Huberman. Mm-hmm. You know, is the, is the energy actually there? Interesting. And he's like, the data doesn't support it. I suspect it's possible. Uh-huh. And he's a very data-driven guy. Very. He's solid, solid science. Solid science. Peer-reviewed journals. Yes. He's like, the data ain't there yet. But I think it exists. That's Chris Voss saying it, not Andrew Huber. Andrew didn't say that. He didn't say, I think it exists. Chris Voss says, I think it exists. These people behind the counter, they're picking up on my vibe. So I, what I got to do, instead of sitting there like, I want this guy, I don't want this guy, I don't want this guy. I might be putting off a bad vibe. Mm. I need to put off a relaxed vibe. Yeah, just like go I'm, walk right I'm up. I'm not and... in any hurry. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm cool. If I'm looking at them, I got to make sure I'm looking at them. And my inner voice is saying, like, take your time. I know you guys are busy. Right. I can't look at them like, do your job. Right. I'm standing here. I'm a customer. You should be waiting. They're going to pick up on that if that's my inner voice. Mm-hmm. So I got to get my inner voice 
in a place where I'm giving off a positive vibe. Relaxed, positive. And then, then I'm going to roll up and I'm going to do, I'm going to do a read on a person in a moment. Hmm. You know, if they look like they're having a bad day, I'm going to say tough day. Um, I'm, I'm hitting the reads on the TSA people all the time. Really? For practice. I do, I do a misread on a TSA guy. Don't remember what airport I was in. I ended up in an unexpected negotiation on the phone 15 minutes later because of the misread. I looked at this TSA guy and he just looked kind of blank. And I said, tough day. And he kind of went, hmm. And then I went, just another day, right? He goes, yeah, yeah, just another day. But that little read is like stretching before going in the game. Mm-hmm. And the conversation I had 15 minutes later, which caught me off guard because I did the read earlier, it was a really successful conversation. What was that conversation? I needed a favor from somebody. What I did, I said, am I offending you if I ask you for this favor? Because I needed him to go out of my way for me. Uh-huh. And I did the no-oriented question, and I did sort of, you know, what am I going to do if I ask him? I might offend him. I'm doing an emotional read. I throw the two of them together on the spur of the moment, which is really kind of where you want to get. Interesting. You know, you, you play the same notes over and over and over, and suddenly you combine them in the moment. That's pretty cool. And that's why I work on my no-oriented questions all the time, and I'll do a random cold read, the TSA guy. My favorite one, I I... I I'm always got a bottle of water in my bag. I, for, I forget to pour out the water. TSA New Jersey. I got a New Jersey uh-huh. TSA guy. They don't put up with nothing. A, a, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so they get the water, and they're, they're taking my bag off to the side. Now, they can almost walk me back out to the curb because the line is so long, they're too secure. Mm-hmm. And the guy's got the bag. And I realize I, I don't want to spend another 20 minutes in line. So I go, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. <laughs> and he walks, he looks at me, and he walks, and he looks at me, and he goes, how long since your last confession, my son? Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, you know what, an hour ago. I'm screwing up all the time. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, he, uh, he took the water, we poured it out. He's not supposed to pour it out. He poured it out for me. He turned around and walked me back, cut me in line in front of everybody else, wow. put me right back in the thing. It's just, yeah, I'm taking care of this guy. It's okay. And it put me through. Wow. That's great. That's amazing. (laughs) Remember, you don't get in life what's fair. You get what you negotiate. If you want to become a better negotiator, click the link in the description below. Uh, I I got one more question um, that I'm personally curious about. You talk a lot about mirroring, um, where you say the last three words and what somebody says and the power of that, and then you just shut up. Mirroring versus layering. Example, when you object, okay, or when you say something that's like, look, we don't have the budget for this, right? Mirroring is so you don't have the budget. Sit, let it sit. So, uh, layering would be, help me understand, what do you mean by you don't have the budget? Is one more powerful than the other? Because what you're both trying to do is get them to talk more and, and really uncover the true like meaning behind what they're saying there. Is there a difference between that? And, and do you see one as more valid than the other in, in certain circumstances? To begin with, if you're at the point where somebody says, we don't have the budget. And you say, help me understand, what do you mean by you don't have the budget? You're telling them that you've not been paying attention up to now. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so, yeah, I use that as a kind of a very simple example, but but you just see what I'm saying, like layering questions to tell me more about that. Could you explain to me? Could you give me an example of versus all that? Right, the first thing you said, tell me more about that's not a question, it's a command. And then you followed up with two straight yes oriented questions, which are trap questions. Okay. But nobody wants to say yes to anything. Okay. So you, you, you hit me with what three straight bad communication techniques. Okay. Right off the bat. Tell me more about that. It's not a question, it's a command. It's a grab for autonomy. It's an attempt to take control of a conversation. Taking control is taking away somebody's autonomy, which we will die to preserve our autonomy. But don't, when you talk about calibrated questions, isn't, don't you talk about how the, you want to make the um, illusion of, of them on, in control when you're actually in command? Uh, we want to have the upper hand. We don't want to have control. Okay. I mean, and, and I'll tell you something else. We don't try to get information by asking questions. We use questions to shape thoughts. Questioning to gather information is a third of the people that you run into will be so-so with it, and two-thirds of them are not going to like it at all. The very, the very analytical person, every time you ask them a question, they stop and they think, I have to think through the implications of every possible answer before I get back to you. So I can't answer you for at least two days. <laughs> okay. So, and, sorry. Yeah, so, so, I mean, we don't, we don't use questions. All right. So somebody, somebody says to the, what was the, uh, it's too much. What was your example before? Yeah. So it's like, it, it's too We don't much. have a budget for this. Yeah. We don't have a budget for this. So this is out of our budget range or something like that. Right. So you, you want to demonstrate understanding. What do they tell you if they don't have the budget for it? They're telling you one of two things, They're either under pressure or what you're offering is not delivering adequate value. Right, the value alignment, yep. So a demonstration of understanding would be seek first to understand, then be understood, demonstrate understanding. Sounds like the value is just not there for you. They have just communicated to you very clearly that something's wrong with your proposition. And instead of you demonstrating any understanding of that in any way, shape, or form, instead you want to challenge them as if they weren't listening. Help me understand here. What's not here for you? Which is equivalent of saying, you know, you haven't been paying attention, so I'm going to have to go back over my value proposition again because you're not paying attention. So let me, let me see if I can isolate where you weren't paying attention so I can go back and correct you. I mean, that's what you're communicating when you say, help me understand what about this is invaluable for you. Okay. And, and, and in most cases, a lot of people probably say it in a tone of voice that indicates that you think they're stupid. Yeah. So, uh, to, but to say, sounds like the value is just not here for you, is, a, is an indication of understanding, and it's an invitation to fix it. And it's taking responsibility on your side to be to be responsive to them instead of them being responsive to you. Cool. And what you're searching for is the that's right, not your right. right? And, and, well, exactly. At some point in time, you get you, 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 if, if somebody's saying you're right to you, that's, they're trying to finish the interaction goal. <laughs> you want to go to lunch. It's the same reason why you don't say I understand. 
because what's the what's the negative part of me like after you tell me so there's one about summarizing and rephrasing back to you but then after you tell me something and me saying i understand what's the danger of that well all right let, let's pretend like you actually do understand right but when you say that they're not clear on what you understand I mean, you're trying to give them the Cliff Notes version of it. I mean, how do they, if you say, I, I understand, how do they know, how do they really know that they got their points across if you don't repeat back to them the points that they, in fact, got across? I mean, you know, since we were kids, we, we played the telephone game. You know, tell somebody a secret. By the time you tell four other people, the secret's completely changed. I mean, it's it's nearly impossible to hear somebody's side of things the first time and get it right. So to say I understand, even if you do, chances are, let's say you're the best listener in the world, chances are you got it 80% right. And you're taking a real risk on a percentage that you got wrong. So I understand is, that's just too nebulous. You tell me that you understand I'm not sure I'm getting a warm and fuzzy feeling they actually do. Gotcha. And in most cases, I understand proceeds, but here's where you're wrong. Mm -hmm. is, it, is it okay to say, let me make sure I heard you correctly, and then rephrase it back to them, or is there a better way of, of, of summarizing what you heard from them that, that makes them more open to understand that you really do understand no, that's not bad at all. I mean, you know, we don't coach people to say it like that. There are other ways um, of saying it. I mean, let me make sure I heard you correctly as a command. And it's a, it's a grab at control again. And it's to take autonomy from the other side. And, you know, I mean, it just that just uh, commands just, uh, they just don't sit well with other people. I mean, if you're a frontline salesperson and your CEO sets you down, you you might be a little bit slow to say, tell me more about that or let me make sure I understand. Yeah. You know, you, you might, you might want to demonstrate your understanding um, or you might change your tone of voice. But, you know, we like uh, deference to begin with, uh, which is not to take control. You know, we love deference as an approach because there's great, there's great power in deference. I mean, we love deference because everybody loves it. If I'm deferential to you, you're going to give me a lot more opportunity to talk because I'm deferential. You're going to feel like you can stop me at any time. I mean, we, lo we love deference. So it's more in the sense of it seems like you're those, that instead of let me make sure I heard this correctly scenario. Yeah, and, and again, tone of voice is going to make a big difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you get away with a lot of bad words with great tone. <laughs> yeah, you do. You know, I, and we were um, on a coaching call just the other day. And, you know, we coach people to identify negatives. Identifying a negative diffuses it. And people say, okay, that makes sense to me. And we say, and identifying a negative never plants it. And they go, okay, that makes sense to me. And then we say, all right, so let's be proactive. Let's say, all right, you pro you're probably upset with us. They say, oh, my God, that's, you know, they, they're going to respond to us. Well, I wasn't, but I am now. But wait a second, two seconds ago, you agreed that we couldn't plant negatives, and now you're, now you're arguing. So we get somebody arguing with us, and so I just stopped, and I said, so it sounds like when I said identifying negatives doesn't plant them, you thought it was wrong? 
Now, listen, listen, that my tone was clear there, right? And I could have said, so it sounds to me like when I said identifying negatives doesn't plan them, you thought I was wrong. Same words. Much different. Tone of voice on a second one kills me. But the first one, you know, I'm the, the tone of voice I'm, makes all the difference in the world. I mean, I'm, I'm a thousand percent convinced that, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street, Jordan Belfort. And, you know, everybody wants to learn from Jordan Belfort. God, no. Fuck no, sorry. And <laughs> but they do, right? Yeah. So what, what what was there what was there to learn from him? And in my view, tone of voice. Yeah. Well the guy the guy I think the guy mastered tonality. Did he? I mean, a thousand and, and clearly he mastered something because yeah. he wouldn't owe a hundred million dollars in restitution, which means he stole way more than that. Uh-huh. You know, but I mean so what did he do? Because yeah, you you take a look at straight line selling and it's no matter what the client says, your widget is the answer. I mean, that by definition is not listening. So how, how, did, how, did, he, how did he get over so much? And in my view, the guy mastered tonality. And, and that is something that's fair for anybody to master. I'm not a fan otherwise. Don't get me wrong. I, I, you know, the, guy owes, the only reason that if you should ever consider buying his book would be to help give some of the $100 million back because he owes restitution based on book sales. Yeah, tell me about it. I, I, whenever anybody asks me what my favorite sales movies are, you know, they Wolf of Wall Street, Boiler Room, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, I tell them no. Those are literally the worst sales movies I've ever seen in my life. You know, they're great movies, they're funny, but they're literally everything that's wrong about selling. It, yeah. It, it, everything that's wrong about selling and i tell them to go look the two best sales movies and actually i'll finish with this i want to understand what yours are my two favorite sales movies uh, uh pursuit of happiness right with will smith wow and tommy boy have you ever watched tommy boy i didn't i never thought of it as a sales movie but you know it's a it's a great thought it's a great <laughs> go watch it because I, I talk about catching your sales groove right and there's a, there's a moment in every sales rep's life where they wake up and it's just a little bit easier today than it was yesterday and you don't know when it was but it's when you stop pitching your solutions and you start having conversations about your solutions. Ah, right. You start caring more about the client's needs than you do about your commission check. And there's that beautiful moment in Tommy Boy where he catches his sales groove. Helen, you look like a Helen. Let me tell you why I suck as a sales rep. And he goes through this whole, like, Jojo, the idiot circus boy with a pretty new pet. And she's like, wow, you're twisted. You know, I'll go fire up those wings. You go, oh, Tommy, like you tell me what wingy. You know, in that moment, he was he would be caught a sales groove because before that he was pitching he was trying to be like his dad you could stick your head up a butcher's ass type of stuff right and couldn't figure it out and then after and then it was just him and it was empathy it was self-deprecation and so it's a it's a beautiful uh sales movie if you if you get a chance to go see it again i'll probably go back and watch it again yeah go watch you can put the sales lens on because right it's funny at first it's like yeah Tommy boy that's fun you know big fat guy making fun of himself but look at it with the sales lens on it's it's a blast <laughs> so that's really cool yeah all right very good do you have any uh, favorite sales movies or anything like that? Or, or look at it through a different lens. I look at it through negotiation, right? And as, as opposed to, as opposed to sales, but that's a lens. I'm going to have to go back and take another look at it. Awesome. Well, Chris, this has been, like I said, I think I'd, I'd love to have an entire day with you asking all these questions just for myself and me learning on my end. Okay. Accusations audit. This folks is a game changer. This is, this is the Jedi mind trick of the black swan group it is amazing okay so what you're doing when you use an accusations audit is you're proactively addressing those negative emotions so anything that the person on the other side of the table could think about you that is possibly negative you're going to put it out there first okay 
whether it's fair or unfair, whether it's true or not, it doesn't matter. If they could possibly be thinking about thinking that about you, then you are going to tell them up front, you know, they're thinking that because then what that does is it kind of takes the power away from them to use that against you later on in the conversation because you've already pointed it out. They don't have to point it out or they're not going to use it against you in any way because you've already thrown it out there. All right. Um, it also addresses anything you might want to deny. So instead of saying, I don't want you to think I'm being mean, but because when you hear that from somebody, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? They're about to be mean. So you don't want to say that you're, you're, you're denying it right up front. So this, instead of saying that you're going to say, you may think I'm being mean. Then you're not saying, I don't want you to think I'm being mean because that's basically screwing it up. But if you say you're going to think I'm being mean, you're basically telling them what they're going to think. And they're going, oh, okay. Once again, I said before, it's a preemptive label. Okay. But you're basically kind of labeling yourself because you're putting all of your own negatives out there. Um, you may, you might, you probably is how it's set up. And don't freak out because you're saying all these negative things about yourself. It doesn't mean that if the negative is not already thought by them that you're going to introduce it. That's not how it works. Okay. If they're not already thinking it, you're not going to plant the thought in their head. That's not how it works. This stuff is magic. All right. Say you, you're supposed to pick up something on the way home and you forget to get it. And so you get home and your spouse says, hey, did you get the milk? And you're like, oh. And you're thinking in your head, oh, shit, I forgot the milk. But you're going to say, oh, my gosh, you're going to be so mad at me. You're just going to think I'm the most irresponsible person. You're going to say, I forgot the milk. Well, you already just told them what they were going to think. So you took the ammunition out of their your wind out of their sails. They're not going to use that against you now because you already told them that they know. And they're going to go, oh. And they might be disappointed, but they're not going to be like, what's wrong with you? I can't believe you forgot the milk. They're not going to be upset because you already pointed out the negative. Okay. Dave, anything you want to say about that before we? I think you covered it. Awesome. Okay. So what do accusations audits do? They recognize those negatives up front. They keep somebody from using that against you later in the conversation. They also clear that person's mind because you're telling them all the negative things you already know that they think so they can actually let go of it at that point because you've already pointed it out. So now they're not focused on that anymore. Because of that, it builds trust very quickly because you are demonstrating to the other side how self-aware you are. You know that there are negative things and you are being nice enough to point it out for the other side and mitigate it from their brain. All right. They think, wow, okay, well, she knows. She knows that I'm thinking that or feeling that. So they're not going to think of you as being sneaky or trying to hide something because you're literally pointing out all the negatives at the beginning of the conversation. It also helps regulate the, the, the other side's expectations. When you give someone an accusations audit, whatever you're saying to them, whatever you're getting ready to introduce to them, they automatically think worst case scenario. You're going to be so mad at me. And they're going, oh my God, what did you do? Worst case scenario is coming to mind. You know, you wrecked the car or you, you, know, you did something horrible and I'm going to have to be worried about this. And then when you say, I forgot the milk, they're going to go, oh, shoo, thought you're going to tell me you wrecked the car or something. So it raises the expectation, sends their mind to worst case scenario. And then when you say what it really is, and it's so much better than what they, where their mind went, it actually calms them down. They're actually like relieved 
because then they don't have to worry about the fact that you wrecked the car because that's where their 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 thought pattern went is that oh my gosh i'm gonna pay thousands of dollars to get the car fixed and you're like i forgot the milk and then they're like oh okay that's okay i can deal with that um why i kind of said some of this already it does demonstrate awareness your awareness it also demonstrates awareness of the other side because you're aware that they have negative feelings and you're aware of their negative feelings so their 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 thought is well they understand me so well they knew i was going to think that bad thing about them gives you freedom to say anything without fear of a negative reaction folks this works and i don't know where kayla is i don't see her face anymore but when you can use an accusations audit on chris voss and it works it can work on anyone the guy wrote the book for God's sake, and he responds to accusations audits. So when you can use an audit on the man and it works, you know, you can use it anytime. Whenever you have to deliver bad news, whenever you're going to be able to ask something that you don't know, you're going to be able to get from somebody. You want to point out all the negatives first about why they might not want to give it to you. And then you're going to ask for it in a very, you know, like, can I have this, you know, and then they're going to be like, Oh, okay. You basically, manipulate the other side. I mean, seriously, this is probably my favorite skill because no matter what you've done, you can audit it. And then you're going to give the information. They've already gone to worst case scenario. And then boom, when you put it out there, like, wow, okay, it wasn't as bad as I expected. Um, you can subvert those preconceived notions. If you're afraid someone is going to think you're too assertive, put that out there. Like, you're going to think I'm the biggest bitch. And you know what? The more colorful you are with the audits, the higher you raise those expectations for that bad news. And then the further they fall when they realize that's not what they're going to get is the bad news. Okay. So you can label that away. If you're somebody who you feel you may be too emotional at times over certain things, you can put that out there too. And you can say, you know, you may think that I'm just too sensitive about this. It helps tame that label of them calling you too emotional. I don't know how many of you at some point in your life have been referred to as emotional or it must be that time of the month and you just want to punch somebody, right? I use that as an audit. You may think it's that time of the month for me. In other words, I'm about to come at you with some claws because it may be that time of the month for me and that's how you're going to feel. So I use that as my audit. And then they're like, Ooh, okay. Fear. Yikes. What's going to happen here? They're bracing for it. And then you're going to say, yeah, I need $50 from you for whatever. And they're like, Oh, you know, shoo, thank goodness. You raise it up and then pull it right back down. And they're like, Oh no, no, no. Ah, oh, relief. Okay. So use that audit. It does help to tame those labels, especially any label you're afraid you're going to get. You put it out there first in an audit and it's going to go away. So if you're somebody who has been accused in the past of being bitchy or assertive, you can come right out and say, this may come across as extremely assertive. You may think that I am just the pushiest person you've ever met. You put all that out there. That way they can't use it against you. You're going to mitigate that negative and it's going to get rid of those labels for you. It also softens that um, conversation. Ah, there he is. Hello. Uh, Hello. Read your book. Got your uh, black swan manual right here. I've uh, used it a couple of times. Oh, no good, only right. question. What do you do when you get a yes? Um, specifically, you know, I asked a pizza parlor, 
they made uh, they made a rock pizza for me. They closed. They went back the next day, and I used. Uh, is it ridiculous to ask for a refund? And uh-huh. unfortunately, I got a yes. It is ridiculous. Cool. So look, I mean, that's confirmation. It's hard for people to say yes. You know, I I, I might fo- I might follow up for with what makes it ridiculous. Because mm-hmm. you're, you're, okay. you're getting instinct is like, if you're going to follow it up, um, you're going to think it's going to be like, why is it ridiculous? And unfortunately, why it makes people defensive. you got to be really careful. Why is this surgical strike? You don't want people to get be getting defensive inadvertently. Um, now, so are, now are we in this? What, what are, you, are you in this for the practice? You in this to get your okay. money back? Because what, what, mm-hmm. how much, how much was the pizza? Yeah, the pizza was, uh, you know, negligible in price, uh, but I was looking for a refund. Um, and uh, it, eventually we did settle. You know, it wasn't the price I wanted, but just to kind of understand the tactic of giving a yes to a no or any question, you know, where we go from there. It happens. All right. So at that point in time, if you're going to proceed, then I would mm-hmm. look at simply as a learning journey. Unless you got like a million dollars literally on the line, the only value to proceeding is for a learning experience. Now, whatever you're making an hour now what, and whatever's at stake, you, you're not doing it for the money. You might be doing it for the experience. Make yourself a better negotiator. Practice a little more empathy. So if they say it is ridiculous, what makes mm-hmm. it ridiculous? Or potentially, now we got some little accusations audit stuff. You're familiar with our accusations audit, right? Yes, yes. All right, throw some of that out for me. Give, 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 do, do a little uh, do a little free uh, scat a little bit. Isn't that what they say in, in jazz? You got to scat? Scat an accusation yeah, audit. <laughs> so an accusation audit. Um, looking at the chapters here. No, 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 no cheating. You got to <laughs> give me off time. I'm trying to cheat. Part. So an accusation audit um, in this instant would um, would be stating the obvious. I assume, um, you know. Uh, All right, let, let me stop. Let me let me stop you a little bit. All right. So if they hang up the phone, or if they put mm-hmm. you on hold, and they turn to one of their colleagues, what do they say about you? This guy is ridiculous. This guy is asking for yeah. a refund. And what does that make you in their eyes? So that would be a uh, probably someone who 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 is less par or not um, on their level. You know, I'm probably you know assumed. You're pulling uh, your punches. If 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 you if you got a minimum wage dude at a pizza joint mm-hmm. who feels beaten up by you because you're asking for a refund the next day after you probably ate the pizza or probably gave it to your dog, you're a what? Yes, I am a cheapskate. Now you are. Now you are. So okay, so I would probably do that for myself. Uh, it's another. I'm another pesky customer. Yeah, there you go. Now you're getting on it. You know, so I probably seem like I'm another cheapskate, pesky customer pushing you. Mm-hmm. I probably don't realize. Okay. You know, you're. You know, you figure out. You know, well, I'm making more money than you are. You're. You're knocking yourself out on a pizza joint making minimum wage, your mom's yelling at you, your girlfriend's yelling at you, you're under all kind of pressure. And here's the self-centered dude who uh, probably eats caviar when he's not eating pizza, 
who's taking the time because he's such a cheapskate and so selfish. And, uh, you know, that that's an accusation sort of run. Like, what is, you know, okay. their amygdala, what is their amygdala causing them to, to say about you? And so, yeah, I, the I, fear. Okay. I'd, 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 go after, I'd go after that if I'm looking to learn. You know, okay. because the pizza parlor dude probably is some poor sap living in his parents' basement whose mom's yelling at him and his girlfriend wants to know when he's going to get out of the basement. You know, whatever, whatever this dude is struggling with, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Through, if, you, if you're going to keep going, you know, do a little bit of a uh, tactical empathy exercise. And, Certainly. you know, who, who knows, you know, who knows where, who knows where it might lead you. If nothing else, you get a little practice. Great. Um, so uh, I work uh, in risk and safety. We deal with a lot of customers um, and some on the front line trying to ask uh, these customers new business. So, um, you know, one of the questions we would ask is, uh, you know, is it ridiculous for us to come take a visit? And of course, do a no, a, a uh, <clears throat> late night DJ voice in that one because um, it's a uh, just starting out or would you would would you want to do an upward inflection? For a no-oriented question, that's a great question. And I, and I also got I got a follow-up calibrated question for you. But yeah, I, I do the upward inflection. Mm-hmm. I go, is it is it ridiculous for us to come out and take a visit? Mm-hmm. That's probably how I throw that baby out there. And the calibrated question would be what? It's a little bit of what I was talking about with Tage before. I think you know what stands in the way of us coming okay. out and doing an on-site. Because people are, are always, you know, they got to figure out the obstacles. You know, I got, I got, I got to schedule this. I got to talk to my boss. He doesn't like people coming mm-hmm. on site. You don't know me. You know, focus on solving obstacles. What stands in the way? Okay. And that, you know, that'd okay. be that'd be follow up. I'd go with that. All right. Well, uh, this is all I really have prepared for you today. Uh, you said you had a calibrated question for me. Yeah. What stands in the way? Of us coming. That's okay. a calibrated what question. Okay. What questions are basically designed principally, or what question is principally designed to uncover obstacles? Okay. And that's so, how, uh, you know, that's how we prepare. All right. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks for the question. Thank Good you. stuff. Now, when one's in a negotiation, you brought up the term anchoring a little while back. I think of anchoring as that psychological mechanism where with the first person that brings up a price, say if there is no price out there, um, oftentimes the end negotiation might anchor back more closely to that first price that was brought up. I don't know whether it's wise for one to go first in negotiation or, or not, or whether it depends. But let me just introduce this. Since we have been talking about the sale of a piece of real estate, Chris, in a sense, between seller and buyer, The seller has kind of already begun the negotiation, if you will, because before that buyer even finds out about that property, I can see the price that it's $500,000. I can see this fourplex with eight bedrooms and four bathrooms. So therefore, has the seller already kind of gone first in a negotiation or or does that even matter or who should go first? Yeah, well, if if you get something that's priced in advance, it's listed, yeah, the seller's gone first. Yeah. Now, the anchoring question is a fascinating one, and my my academic brothers and sisters will tell you to anchor, and the top-tier negotiators will say he or she who names price first loses. Interesting, because I thought it would have been to my advantage to anchor and name a price first. 
it's to your advantage on the deals that you made. What about the deals that you blew away from the table? And that's the problem. And that's why the academics love it. And the top tier negotiators, like I'm horrified that my anchor is going to blow a deal I should have made. And that's why I don't want to leave money on the table. I don't want to not blow deals. And, you know, every top tier negotiator, and I can remember, you know, over a steak and a scotch, Ned and I, Cleddy and I were talking about this too. And I, it hasn't failed. The people in the business world that are known as the top tier negotiators believe he or she who names price first loses. Because the other side goes first, that's information. Great negotiators are data loving people. You go first, you're giving me data. What happens if I like the price? Now I'm like, oh, here's, here's, I can take this and I can let you believe you had your way. This is a really good price for me. And if I get you to emotionally dig in on this price, which you accidentally gave me a great price, you don't even know it. I'm going to make this deal. Now, how often does that happen? How often does it have to happen? I want to make every deal possible. I do not want to lose a deal over price. Dropping an extreme number drives deals from the table that I should have made otherwise. Now, what we do, as opposed to price anchoring, we do emotional anchoring. I will say to you, look, I... I give you my price, but you're going to hate it. I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'd love to give you price, but it's going to be so extreme that you're going to get angry. You're going to scream at me. I'm scared you're going to get mad. And now, I sh now I'm going to shut up. So you're going to imagine a price that's worse than what I'm going to throw out. Now, when I do come up with my price, you're not going to get mad at me because by saying, go ahead, go ahead, you know, just tell me what it is. You've already braced yourself for news that's going to be worse than whatever I say. Lay it on me. What do you got? All right. So um, ghosting is a problem, but I think one of the worst problems, especially whether it's sales or deal making, which is what I'm in, um, stay in touch, right? The prospect, the other party, they want you to stay in touch. You don't stay in touch enough. You become forgotten. If you stay in touch too closely, you are annoying. Any suggestions on tact tactfully or tactically staying in touch and making sure you're moving the needle with them? Yeah, so um, their, their last words to you is stay in touch. What's the prompt here? Yeah, usually it's this question I get asked a lot. So it's usually we're in long sales cycles, pretty complex deals. Um they, they tend to like you or whatever, but they're, they're not ready to move forward with the negotiation, the deal, the contract or whatever. Stay in touch. They're not saying no, which I'd rather they ghost or say no because then we can move on, but stay in touch. So what would be, you know, a couple of ideas you might think of of how to stay in touch? You know, that, that's would, that. No, 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 no. Let, let's rethink this. First of all, that's, a, that's the same as a maybe. And you got to treat maybes as if they're no's. So that's, a, that's mm -hmm. the way you got to proceed. After saying stay in touch, it's either a flat no, they're not going to do it, or they, has, they have misgivings that you're not revealing. Mm -hmm. So 
you and you know that to be true. Like, are you keeping your are you keeping your percentages, your win rate percentage, your length of time to an outcome, and your percentage of successes on your stay in touches? A percentage of stay in touches to success, yes. We we call it more of a pull through yield, meaning deals we put in the pipeline to success ratio. It's really high. It's about eighty five percent. But I'm this not is sure more that the, you answered my question. Hold on. Yeah. Stay in touch as a category only. You can tell me what percentage of the stay in touch people, let's call mm-hmm. let's call them a zebra or a giraffe okay. or a thoroughbred. I don't care. Mm-hmm. They're one they're one profile. Mm-hmm. Stay in touch. Can you tell me what percentage of those close and how long it takes to close? Yes or no? Yes, I could. I could. Yes, I could. Yes. Okay. So, can you? Uh, so, first of all, it's not a sin to not get the deal. It's a sin to take a long time to not get the deal. Correct. So, if they're saying stay in touch, what do you know to be true? That they're not saying no. They're somewhat amenable to terms, but whether it's timing or pressure or something on their side that's not motivating them to be enough to turn the dial to let's sign uh, the retainer. All right. So they have misgivings or they lack pressure or they don't see the immediate value. Nobody says stay in touch on something that they see immediate value to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Otherwise they'd execute. If they see immediate value to it or if they have um, pressure to execute, they'd execute. Mm Mm-hmm. So Good point. the response is going to be a label. Stay in touch. Sounds like you have misgivings. It's a good point. Stay, stay in touch. Sounds like there are other things that are pressuring you. Now, they're going to be much more likely to talk with you about the barriers than they are to talk about what's going to hook them. Mm-hmm. Because people are comfortable talking about what's getting in the way because they don't feel there's a commitment involved. So they're free. I'm free to tell you what the barriers are. It's up to you to solve them. If you want to say, well, what would it take to make this deal? I don't want to say that because it's going to back me into a corner. Mm -hmm. So you want to focus on the barriers instead. And you probably want to go after that with labels. So I, I would I would never, you know, and I, I got to tell you something. Nobody in my business development team goes into stay in touch mode. Uh, and and a lot of what we've learned will be inspired by similar to um, Jim Camp's Start With No, 2002 book. I work with Jim. We collaborated over a lot of stuff. Me and his sons, Jim has since deceased. Their whole approach was to get somebody make a decision. Yes mm-hmm. or no. But every conversation was designed to make a decision. And stay in touch is to avoid decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's a maybe. And it's never, never land. And you cannot monetize maybe. To some degree, you can monetize. We're not making this deal because then you can move on. So I would, I would never go into stay in touch mode. I get stay in touch. What do you know to be true? You know... They don't see the value right now. You know, they're being pressured in other areas. You know, they have misgivings. You know those things to be true. Mm -hmm. Throw it out with a label, focus in on that. They're going to be much more likely to talk with you. 
I like the take on that. Very good. I love it. Thank you. You're a rock star, yeah, man, man, but you know. That was a great question. Thank you very much for, uh, for the question. Thank you. Pleasure. How we can negotiate during these uncertain times so that we can survive in order to pick up the pieces economically when this is all over. You're faced with colleagues, clients, vendors, customers trying to completely pull out of deals because they are scared about what's going on. And consequently, you're trying to hang in there and you're scared about what's going on also. I'm going to give you a three-step process in order to maximize your chances for success. The Black Swan Group is always here to give you the best chance of success. And here's the steps to the process that will put you in the best position to not just survive, but to thrive through these times. So we're going to start with what we refer to as tactical empathy. And then we're going to move from that point into an effective pause to let our tactical empathy sink in. And then we're going to be using something that the Black Swan Group calls a thought-shaping question. So we'll start off with the, what the facts are and how we see it. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's going to be language in this video for mature audiences only. Because we're going to use the language that we're using with each other. I had a client call me up on the phone the other day after they'd sent me a text message that said, this is a total shit show. So that's the way we're going to start this out because this is the way everybody is viewing this situation. A total shit show. Start out by saying, this is a total shit show. I know you are scared to death. You guys are desperate. You're scared this whole thing is going to get out of control. And it's going to destroy you and your company. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what people are feeling on the other side. The best way to drive a stake through the heart of any fear is to just simply call it out. Even call it out, overdo it. If you're not laying it on thick, you're not laying it on thick enough. You've got to drive a stake through the heart of these fears and you do it in a fearless manner. Again, this is how this goes. This is a total shit show. You guys are desperate. You're scared this whole thing is going to get out of control. And it's going to destroy you and your company. Now notice when I said this, I didn't put in, we're scared too. When the other side is scared, they're not worried about whether or not you're scared. They're caught up in their own fears. And we're not going to use we as a disguise when we need to be using the word you. Tactical empathy is a recognition of how the other side is actually feeling and the articulation of it. It's about them and it ain't about you. And this is not the time to be dropping we's in the middle of it when you need to be connecting with them by saying you. Now the next thing you're going to do after this is you're going to go silent. Good use of tactical empathy has got to sink in and you can't be stepping on it with coming up with but, this is how we're going to deal with it, or but, any of this but nonsense. Believe me, as Brandon Voss, the president of the Black Swan Group, likes to say, nobody wants you to put your butt in their face. So anytime you're about to use the word but is the perfect time to go dead silent. You need to let your tactical empathy sink in. So go dead silent and if you have to, Start counting 1,000s to yourself silently. One 1,000, two 1,000, whatever it takes. You have to stay silent and let them make the next move. Now, they're either going to give you an indicator that they want to hear what you have to say, or they're going to express some more of their own fears, which means you haven't expressed it enough for them, and it's a time to paraphrase what they say, or even expand on how they feel about it. Or if they've gone completely silent on you, that means you're on the right track, you just haven't gone far enough. And if you're on the right track and you haven't gone far enough, when they're silent, the next thing you got to do is say, 
and I haven't even expressed as bad as it is, probably feels much worse to you than what I've said. This is a recognition of the dynamic that's taking place in a moment. You've got to clear somebody's fears out before you move on. Otherwise, they're going to continue to have all the judgment and everything that they say clouded with fear. You're also not explaining the situation to them. Ronald Reagan said a long time ago, if you're explaining, you're losing. And believe me, if you're trying to explain something to someone, you are losing. Now, deference, of course, is the key to all this. And the late night FM DJ voice. We're not using an urging voice. We're not using an exciting voice. It's a late night FM DJ voice of understanding and confidence. Now we move into the third and final phase. We're going to shape their thinking with a great how question. Now, as you know, our how questions are what we refer to as calibrated questions. And we ask questions not to get answers, but to shape thoughts. So this is a how question designed to be a thought-shaping question. How do we work our way through this so that we don't destroy each other and we put ourselves in a position to pick up the pieces and work together when this is over? Now what we've done here is we've opened up with a how question in a deferential way to trigger what Daniel Kahneman would call slow thinking. This is slow, in-depth thinking, stop you in your tracks thinking, and it also makes the other side feel safe and secure. It's deferential. People love to be asked how. They don't realize that you've helped to make a complete mental shift here because they feel safe and in control by the how question. And then we've added in the visions of the inevitable future. The inevitable future is we're going to have to pick up the pieces after this is over. This video is about labels, the ultimate negotiation tool. Sometimes we think of it as the ultimate MacGyver tool. What makes it a MacGyver tool? Well, a MacGyver tool is really simple and incredibly effective, ridiculously effective. To do your labels right, you got to keep them simple. Stick to the format. It seems like, it sounds like, it looks like. You seem, you sound, you look. We have a great negotiator that loves to say it feels like. Stick to that simple format. We're intentionally leaving the word I out. I is a thought interrupter, a pattern interrupter. When you use the word I, it draws attention to yourself. It interrupts the other side's thinking. And you're using labels to gather information. We know from negotiation the ideas to gather information. A crazy thing is, asking questions is not always the best way to gather information. Labels work well more of the time than asking questions do. Labels trigger stream of consciousness reactions. You might say to somebody, what are you thinking about this? You might label them instead and say, seems like you're giving this a lot of thought. Or it seems like you're thinking about something here. Or... It seems like you saw some things you like. Either one of those is going to trigger a much more unvarnished flow of thoughts from the other side. One of the people who's really learned this stuff and is doing a great job of applying this in a real estate area calls it unlocking the floodgates of truth talk. Happens to be a woman that's applying this and seeing the insights and not the least bit surprising because women have a tendency to pick this stuff up faster than men do. It doesn't mean men can't be great at it also, just that for whatever reason, women seem to get a head start on understanding this and applying it really quickly. This is emotional intelligence-based negotiation. 
One of the crazy things about this is that when Brandon and I brought these hostage negotiation techniques out of hostage negotiation into the business world, we didn't think labels were that big of a deal. I can tell you now that we both use them so much that we can work our way entirely through a negotiation only using labels. When you get good at them, you respect their simplicity and you apply them, you can use them all over the place. One of the main things that makes labels incredibly versatile is the fact that all three types like them a lot. We've done a lot of polling. We've got a lot of reason to believe that the world pretty much breaks up into three types, assertives, analysts, and accommodators, across the board, regardless of gender or ethnicity. We probably polled at least 2,000 people in this regard. We got a fair amount of data. And in polling all these people, and in different classes where we've talked, we frequently run exercises where we ask them, of the nine negotiation skills, which skills would you most prefer your counterpart use with you in order to make a great deal with you? All three types pick labels as number one or number two. So while you're still trying to get a feel for the other side and draw a beat on what type they are, labels will always be your highest percentage shot at the very beginning when you're proceeding. And then if you find out that they resonate really well with labels, you just simply stick to them. It's your safest bet. And the way you go from being barely good enough to get by to being a superstar is just by increasing your odds a little bit at a time. Labels increase your odds. Get good at them. Practice them simply. Practice every day. Get your reps in. And they will serve you well. How much practice should you get in? An hour a day. Make an hour label hour. Label at noon. Label over lunch. Label from seven to eight every day. Whatever time it is. Get your practice in. Make a cheat sheet of labels. Keep it by your phone. Your cheat sheets should especially include labels of negative dynamics. Fill in a blank. It seems like you hate X. It seems like you dislike X. It seems like X is a problem for you. Have those fill in a blank labels by your phone. Have them ready. They will serve you well. The reason we say labels are so good for women is because they're great to use in response to inappropriate or patronizing behavior. Um, I would probably bet that nearly all of us on this call have experienced inappropriate and patronizing behavior and probably why you're here and i'm glad you're here when you get that behavior aimed your way you can use a label to redirect the conversation to kind of steer it away and take it to where you want it to go it also can create a thought pattern interrupt this works well when the behavior needs to stop and be addressed Sometimes if someone puts a little bit of something out there, you can kind of label the situation and redirect the conversation. You know, oh, Davey, that's a good label you have for there. Why is it not coming to my brain? Um, when you're redirecting someone. When you're redirecting someone. Um, <clears throat> oh, I don't know if there was one specifically, but essentially where you just get back on topic, right? Like if someone's being inappropriate and um, you're and you're supposed to be talking about, you know, where we're making this deal, right? Then you might say, it seems like you're interested in um, furthering this business relationship and making this deal, 
right? Okay. You you just kind of get like let's let's get back on topic. And so you say it seems like you're you're wanting to do whatever X Y Z that you actually want them to do. Yeah, <laughs> getting them back on track. So yeah, veers them off where they're headed and back to where you want them to be in the moment. Um, this also can create a thought pattern interrupt. Sometimes that first label won't work. And when you're dealing with behavior that needs to stop and it needs to be addressed, you can label it more specifically and use it to create that interrupt. So if they've gone down a road of you're trying to make a deal and they're talking about, hey, we should go out for drinks afterwards. You know, they, they hinted around at it at first, you labeled them back into the conversation. Then they pushed it a little bit further. Now you have behavior that needs to stop and be addressed. So you can say, um, it looks like we need to get back to the business at hand. Kind of like, you know, in other words, stop going there. I want you to come back here. It's just a little more direct, a little bit more pointing out the behavior is wrong instead of just kind of veering them back on track. So you're saying, you know, it looks like we're, we, we shouldn't be dealing with that right now. Let's, let's handle what's at, at the matter at hand. If that doesn't work, we go for door number three, which is what we call a confronting label. Okay, this is a very assertive move. You don't want to use it at first. Um, you want to kind of try and label away if you can, just to, to keep that condescension coming from coming out from the other side. Do it a little more subtly. But if it gets really bad, sometimes you just got to put somebody in their place. So if they continue on the line of let's go get drinks or say they start calling you honey, um, you know, you, you can say, oh, it, it seems like you think it's okay to, to refer to me as honey. <laughs> I mean, very aggressive, very assertive move. So it's not something you want to use right out of the box, but that is literally calling them on their behavior. You've tried to be nice. You've tried to do that interrupt to get them to go in another direction. And now you're just like, damn it, stop doing this. This is not what I want. So boom, <laughs> seems like you just want to keep continuing here. And, and basically I'm not comfortable with that. David, did you want to add something there? Yeah, I mean, I love I love using the labels in this way um, because it it really softens whatever it is that you need to say, right? Like we're always walking this weird line of like, well, I don't want. Can we say? Can we swear in this? I like just, I, I hope so. <laughs> like we all get it. Um, like we're walking this line of okay, I need to not be the bitch, right? I need to not be be rude or whatever because then they're going to label me as a bitch. But you need to call out inappropriate behavior. So you're put in this weird spot, and then a label just is so helpful because it calls out inappropriate behavior, but it allows the person. So essentially, it allows the person to realize what they're doing and kind of explain themselves, right? Like, so like, it seems like, yeah, I love that. It seems like you think that's appropriate to call me that, mm -hmm. right? That like, oh, then that person can think about what they're doing and have to try to explain. Um, or it seems like kind of the creating a thought pattern interrupt. Um, an example of that is, um, it seems like you're not really interested in making this deal. So you can go the opposite direction, right? where essentially you're calling that person out on like, okay, essentially what you're saying is by treating me this way, we are not going to end up with a deal. And it's a soft way of calling that behavior out and making sure that people can essentially go backward and fix it. And if you want to use that label and you want them to address the bad behavior that you're actually pointing out to them, you can put an upward inflection on it. It implies that it's a question and you want them to basically tell you, why are you doing this? Um, which is even more assertive. So 
just <laughs> just be advised it is an assertive move all right let's talk about why labels and then we'll get to any questions that anybody has about labels so labels actually play to women's strength of intuition Okay, women are much more intuitive than men. Um, we tend to go with our gut a little bit more. We're trained earlier on in our life to kind of trust the little voice in the back of our head. Men aren't really taught that as they're growing up as women are. You know, women are taught to be cautious and all that. So we have, and I think it's kind of crap that we have to learn that stuff, but in a way it helps us out because we do have better intuition. And when it comes to using the black swan skills, we are actually better at it. I'm just going to go there. Just say, we're just better at it. We don't have to try as hard to do things like come up with underlying dynamics for a deep label because we're very good at picking up on underlying dynamics. Um, women, I think in a, in a, just in an everyday conversation are much better at picking up what's not being said. Okay. We're, we're much better at, at kind of putting the pieces together and saying, well, wait a minute, you're saying this, but you're also saying this. So this is really what you mean. Men don't do that as well. Okay, they really don't. Um, labels allow us to kind of deep dive into someone's psyche without it feeling intrusive to them. Um, and that's essentially what you want to be doing when you use a label anyway. We don't necessarily say it that way because if we say it that way in the normal training that we do for Black Swan and it's not directed distinctly at, at women, men lose their minds over this. Psyche, feeling intrusive, what, what is that all about? Women understand these terms. So this is why we use these terms with you, okay? When you're using a label, you can look at the dynamics around the situation and you can give the deepest label that you can find. So if someone is acting like they are um, frustrated with something, but you, you already know why they're frustrated, label the frustration and why it's there in the label, okay? Don't just say, it seems like you're frustrated because that is very, very surface. You can say, it seems like you're frustrated because you're having to deal with blah, 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 blah. And you put the whole thing out there. That way they understand that you, it, it's a deeper label. They get that you're, you're with them. You know where they're coming from. You know how they're feeling and you're putting it out there. And it's less intrusive when you use a label. Sandy, we do, we have a couple of questions come up. Do we want to go back to the label questions? Sure, they have label questions, sure. Okay. So um, one question is from um, Ivan. I'm not sure, I hope that's right. Um, so she's asking, can you use it when negotiating promotion? So she said, for example, seems like you do not feel like I'm ready for the promotion or seems like you would prefer this person get a promotion and not me. So she's wondering what the best way to use that would be without being pushy. Um, I think both of those labels are appropriate. Um, labels, can be used in any situation just about, okay? As long as you're using a good label and you're not labeling something that's gonna come across as you know, rude or purposely to make someone defensive, I think you're gonna be fine. Every personality type, every negotiator personality type responds well to labels, okay? All three of the types, Accommodator, assertive, analyst, all of them like labels. So no matter who you're dealing with on the other side of the table, a label will be fine. Just monitor your tone of voice. Make sure you put it out there very, you know, matter of factly, especially with the, what was the first label again? Seems like. Seems like, let's see. Seems like you do not feel like I'm ready for the promotion. Right. So soften that up just a hair and say, 
seems like um, there may be a feeling that I'm not ready for this promotion. That way you're not singling out that one person that you're talking to. And instead of saying, it seems like you don't feel like I'm ready for this, it seems like there may be a feeling that I'm not ready for this. That way you're, you're not pointing specifically at that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would just, um, if I can add something real quick, yeah, Sandy. Fine. Um, for example, if you're wanting, if you're wondering, like, why am I not being promoted, right? You can use a label to try to understand that, that as well, right? Like, um, seems like there's something impeding this promotion. Seems like there's something, right? Like, there's some kind of obstacle. So you can address that. And then you'll get to the bottom of maybe why you're not getting the promotion in the first place. One more question. Sorry, that fluffed. Okay. Um, so um, there's one, what if you're clearly being disrespected? So like if someone's like staring at your chest, for example, instead of talking to you in your actual eyes, face, um, she said, for an example, seems like you're being a pig. <laughs> um, is that a bit harsh? Yeah, that, that's a bit harsh. Um, you want to point it out, but you don't want to point it out by by actually calling them a name. So what might be better is it's, it seems like something in our conversation is distracting you. And in other words, I know that you're distracted by this and you shouldn't be distracted by this. So I'm going to point out that I know you're distracted and maybe that'll bring your eyes up where they're supposed to be. So remember, you're not just actually labeling um, how you feel about them you're labeling the dynamics of the situation. So if you have someone that's constantly looking at your chest, you can say, it seems like you may be a little distracted because then when you're looking right at them and they look at you and they, they know they've just looked up, they're going to be like, oh, you know, caught red-handed. So, um, and you might even follow that up with another label saying, you know, it looks like we need to kind of regroup and get back on track and, you know, do it that way. But be careful being quite so blunt and honest, um, look for more of the, the situation that's happening there and kind of label that. They know what they're doing, okay? That pig knows what he's doing. He knows he's looking at your chest. He's not stupid. He knows he's looking at your chest. So when you say, seems like you may be a little distracted and you're looking right at him with a question mark, like, are you distracted? <laughs> and he's going to look up and realize that he just got snagged. Okay, so you want to point it out, but you don't want to, and, and this is the problem that some women face. When you speak up for yourself, you're automatically categorized as, as an assertive bitch, and you shouldn't be. So using the labels in a more subtle way will break away from that. And keep in mind, using labels is cumulative. In other words, it's not a one and done skill. Sometimes you have to do it three or four times to get an idea across. But if you stay in the proper mindset, if you stay curious about why are they acting the way they're acting, and it may be because they're a pig, but you don't necessarily want to point the finger at that right away. Um, they're that way because that's the way they feel like they can act somehow or another through their life somewhere someone has given them the permission and told them that it's okay to do that you don't have to put up with that you can call them on that you can say seems like you're finding something else more fascinating and i mean look down like you know where they're looking and you don't have to point out and say stop looking at my breasts you know and be obvious about it but you can basically put out there you know it, seems like you're you're too busy focusing somewhere else looks like we need to refocus on what we're doing and just be a little more subtle about it 
do it with a smile on your face, stay in that accommodator voice because then it's not threatening to them and you're not going, seems like you're too busy looking at my breast, you know, because then they're going to get defensive. And when they get defensive, you're automatically a bitch in their eyes, even when you've done absolutely nothing wrong. So the way yeah, you, I mean, go oh, ahead. Sorry, no, go ahead. No, yeah. I mean, to that point where it's like, okay, I, you know, hate the idea that like we always have to be smiling or whatever, right? Ultimately, it's, it's just when you're at attacking someone. So if like you're essentially calling that person a name, it's just always going to be counterproductive. Does that person deserve it? Sure. That's not what we're talking about, right? Of course they do. But the problem is it's like, if I want to have a working relationship with this person, if it's going to be more beneficial for me in the long run, which most of the time it is, then I need to understand how to actually make this productive. And so calling out behavior rather than name calling is going to be the more productive route. Absolutely. Um, and then um, Dion had a question, which is how is it bad to come across as bitchy? Bitchy. I'm not going to say that it's never okay to be bitchy because I, I mean, you know, I'm bitchy a lot. I'm just going to be honest with you. It, it just has to be done in an appropriate place in an appropriate way. And when you're in a business negotiation situation or dealing with something at work, you can regulate yourself. You can control yourself and how you act and what you say. You cannot control the other side and what they do. However, you can have an influence on them by the way you use your tone of voice, by the way you hold yourself, and by the way you project yourself. So if you are dealing with someone on the other side of the table who is assertive, if you go at them assertive, which pretty much is bitchy, clash, and you're not going to be able to work it out. Okay. The best way is to go to tactical empathy first, You know, figure out why they're acting like they are, and most of the time it's just because they're being a jerk. Um, so you have that and you understand that. So when you understand that it's going to help you center yourself a little bit more, not react to that piggish behavior and instead label that behavior and try to divert it a little bit. Absolutely. And speaking of the negotiation nine, how are asking labels more effective than direct questions in real estate? That's a great question. So an asking label in um, the black swan group and asking label is essentially picking out the the emotion the dynamic and verbalizing it it's using your intuition and in real estate and this will this kind of connects to the the unfortunate problem that we have in this industry of getting to yes where everybody wants yes so we all just strive for yes um, if we change, if we do that two millimeter shift and we instead look for the dynamic and identify it and articulate it and ask, we'll get so much more information back. So if I ask my client, you know, or the other agent on the other side, is a 30 day close okay for you? That's quick. I'm, I'm triaging. I just need to know. I need to get to the yes. Is this going to make the deal? Yes or no? Instead, if I say it seems like your client would like, would prefer a quick close, I'm engaging them in a way that, and I, and I need to be aware of my tone there. seems like your client would like a quick close. I'm engaging them in a way that implies I need more information. 
And so um, we tell our clients here at the Black Swan Group to start small. So for all the agents listening on this call, you know, this is scary. This is uncomfortable. Start at Starbucks. Don't start with that deal that you want. Start with the barista. You know, it sounds like you're having a rough day today. And just listen. And then when he or she tells you how they're feeling, label what they tell you. And just see what kind of information you get back. You're going to be astounded by the, by the information that you get. Then start using it at your open houses. Um, start small, and then it's, they work. And here's here's what I wanted to throw in on top of that with the asking label. The power, <clears throat> excuse me, the power in the asking label is that it doesn't provoke the same defensive responses that a direct question does. There's a full third of the population that hates direct questions. You want to shut them down, you start peppering them with questions, and you're going to be well on your way to having them close off to you. They feel like they're being interrogated. They feel like they're being pumped for information. So it doesn't take, it's not a heavy lift for you to take whatever, what, when, why, where, how question, turn it on its ear and make it a label. Instead of asking your counterpart agent, why haven't you signed, why haven't they signed the contract yet? The shift would be, it seems like there's a pretty good reason as to why they haven't signed yet. It carries an entirely different tone because going back to what she said earlier, this is one of the most emotional transactions that take place in anyone's life. It's replete with negative emotions. Negative emotions impede people's cognitive ability. The more you allow those negative emotions and dynamics to persist, the dumber you're allowing your counterpart to remain. And all of us, regardless of what the conversation is about, we want the person on the other side to be as cognitively nimble as possible. So we're doing, we're going, we're working overtime to mitigate those negatives. And part of that process is let's change those direct questions into asking labels. And you'll be amazed at how much more information you get when you ask a question in a label form. And it's not, all you have to do is think of the label. It looks like it seems like it sounds like, and then upward inflect at the end, that turns it into a question, and you're going to get a more candid and robust response from the other side. Sorry, Marcel. Derek, no, I think you actually you, you brought up a fantastic point. Um, in Unfortunately, in our industry, there are agents that are under a, a significant amount of pressure and are trained to be assertive. That's how you make deals. You got to get in there. You got to, you know, just, you know, best and final, best and final. I'm not going to answer the phone, whatever it might be. Just get it done. If we address the underlying dynamic, we will, we are invoking reciprocity. They're, it is catching them off guard. They're being dealt with differently than they've ever expected or they're used to. 
you're going to get responses and it might be guarded at first, but if you continue to use these skills, we have a 93% success rate in hostage negotiations in life or death scenarios for a reason. This transition into the private sector is showing similar success rates because they work because it's based in human nature. And so, um, you know, the power of reciprocity goes a long way and just, just showing some tactical empathy is, is, um, it, it is, it's amazing. Chris, I know you like to employ the technique of mirroring. So tell us about mirroring. What is that? And how does that give one an advantage? Yeah, the hostage negotiators mirror, the business negotiators mirror, the black swan negotiators mirror. You know, it's not, not the body language thing that everybody's familiar with. You know, it's not they put their hand to their chin, you put your hand to their chin. You know, they lean to the left, you lean to the left. It's not a body language nonsense. It's a repetition of one to three-ish words. You teach yourself the skill repeating the last one to three words of what they just said. When you have done that enough times, yeah, then you move it around. You get surgical with your mirror. You mirror what you want to hear more about. It's a great skill that does two things simultaneously. It gets the other side talking. gets him to expand. It's much better than what did you mean by that. Much better. You get a much cleaner download of their actual thoughts. It's also a great skill when you are caught off guard. Like they just said something that just make so doesn't make sense that your brain has just stopped. If you practice the mirror... It's a great way to buy yourself a whole bunch of time to get your feet back under you. The other side doesn't know you did it because they feel like you're really listening and they want to talk some more. The funny thing about the mirror that I have found really interesting is the few people that are both high IQ and high EQ, and I'm not high IQ. And EQ is learnable. I believe, you know, I work very hard on my EQ. But the natural-born, high IQ, high EQ people love mirrors. I think it's because it's so simple and it's so effective. And that type of person loves simplicity and effectiveness combined into one. And, and I've seen consistently the smartest negotiators, very high IQ people love to mirror all the time, which I get a kick out of because you know I don't. I just do it because it, I was taught that it worked. I didn't wasn't that quickly attracted to it till I see really smart people. So I pretend I'm really smart by doing it. <laughs> All right. So we're talking about EQ, emotional intelligence, and the technique of mirroring that you use in negotiation. So, for example, if you've got the $500,000 fourplex building you're looking to sell, I want to buy it. Say I'm interested in price. I might try to break you down and say something like, well, it looks like the roof only has five years of life expectancy left on it. What would you say? All right. So I'm, I'm, I'm selling and you're questioning the roof and you want me to mirror? Yeah. Well, I would say five years of life expectancy. Yeah, I'm afraid in five years, that's going to wipe out my cash flow for an entire year when I have to replace that roof. For an entire year? 
Yeah, an entire year of my cash flow just five years away. So since it's a 30-year roof, can't you share in the expense with me? Share in the expense? Yeah, share in the expense of the roof that you haven't replaced. Sounds like if we work that out, all the other terms will work for you? Maybe they would, depending on what we agree to on the new roof and how much we're going to share in this expense that I'd be burdened with if I buy the building. So, you're not worried about how much I'm burdened? You're burdened? Uh, now you're trying to mirror me back. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what? You did something interesting there when you mirrored me a few times, Chris. You got me to say something I didn't plan to say. Maybe you thought that I wanted the entire roof replaced, but after a couple questions, you got me to use the word share. You actually got me down to where now you knew that I was willing to share in the cost of that new roof. And then you knew I wasn't asking you to replace the entire thing. So you actually did manipulate me. Uh, Manipulation is probably not the right word, but you did get me to concede when you mirrored me a couple times. And the only reason I mirrored you is because you, you told me about the technique. So that was really great how you got let, me. Let me, stop, let me stop you for just a second too, because all right, so my observation of your tone was that you didn't feel backed into a corner. Have I got that wrong? You're right. I was being kind of aggressive and going for something. What what I was trying to do is see the dynamic was we got in we got into a sharing conversation without counter offers without argument without anybody getting upset you know I'm creating a collaborative environment here so that I can get you into this idea without you feeling like you got backed into a corner or drug into it that's what I'm really trying to do. I'm trying to expand the conversation. What we would have seen before is bargaining, offer, counteroffer, accusations, all this kind of stuff, meet in the middle, also the nonsense. I'm trying to take the conversation into an area that's collaborative, but you not feeling backed into the corner. Because if I cause you to feel backed into a corner by taking you there, even if I come out on top, quote, on top in this point, you're going to want to get me back elsewhere. And the fear of loss that you talked about before, we got to get people back at least at a two-to-one rate of return to feel even. Danny Kahneman, Nobel Prize winner, behavioral economics, prospect theory, lost things twice as much as an equivalent gain. So if I get you to make a $5,000 concession, you're not going to feel whole until you've gotten me for 10 someplace else on the two to one feeling of loss. Interesting. That's the hard part about bargaining and conceding was because we're human beings. It will never feel equitable and it causes a downward spiral. I want to stay out of that. I don't, I don't want to go there. I don't want to trigger enough. That's going to get triggered by accident. If we got to get into a back and forth exchange, now I got to worry about how much resentment am I going to trigger where you're going to pay me back, which is maybe you don't pay me back on price. 
maybe on uh, something comes up in its inspection, nobody foresaw. Uh, maybe something's wrong with the property. Nobody foresaw. Maybe, you know, no real estate transaction. Just because you got a signed contract, does that mean you're going to close? Anybody that's been in real estate longer than five minutes know that does a, a, a signed agreement to close is a journey. There are an odysseys in there every time. Inspections, appraisals, sure. Right. So, I mean... The beginning of the journey is a signed contract. I gotta, I gotta watch the resentment that gets triggered just getting to the signed contract, because boy, if 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 you if you feel stung, you you gotta double down on me, and that's why we've all heard of deals, a half a million dollar deal that that goes down in flames over fifteen hundred dollar inspection. Right. How stupid is that? Oh, yeah. That makes no economic sense. A $500,000 home doesn't sell because they're in an argument about the $500 refrigerator or something. And then people want to <laughs> save face, right? People want to save face. Saving face is a big deal in a negotiation. Yeah. Even if someone loses more money, as long as they save face, it seems like yeah. people with a high ego will be more happy with that if they just save face, even if they lose money. That's exactly right. I don't want to go there. I don't want to lose a deal because I hurt your feelings. (laughs) That's just silly. So let me do everything I could possibly do to preserve your feelings of integrity and autonomy because I know problems are coming after we get the signed deal. How many, many, nothing goes through clean from signed to close. Nothing. So if I know problems are coming, why don't I do everything I can to prepare for them? 